Hey everyone, welcome to Rajit Show, the show where I interview people who are reshaping what it means to live well in the 21st century. We talk the creator economy, learning and building in public, and how we can hack our way out of our most pressing issues. Enjoy. Yeah, I had two thoughts. One of the things that you said reminded me of Jack Butcher on Twitter, sort of build uh-huh. once, sell twice, Yes. right? This idea of a funnel. I'm new to this idea, but then obviously people are going to get introduced to Mike Baxter and, and then they start at the top of the funnel. Obviously they have, yeah. they watch a short video, they read something, some piece um, that you've written online perhaps. And then they go, okay, I'm interested more. And so it's interesting how you can, right? Cause in, in my head, I'm thinking that a couple hundred pounds or, or dollars that signifies quite a big investment in you and what you have to say and something like that. But I think structuring in that way makes it accessible to a whole lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. And when you think of professional development work, so I suspect the situation is probably even more expensive in the US, but in the UK right now, an undergraduate education is 40,000, something like that. That I'm, So my kids are just at that stage of either going through university education or having finished. Mm-hmm. They're spending something in the region of £40,000 to get an undergraduate education, and then possibly another ten to 15000 getting a master's, and then possibly on from that. So my benchmark is around ten to £15,000 for a master's. And if you look at, say, the content of that book, the strategy manual, there is about the same amount of content as you would get in a master's curriculum in the book. So there's about, in UK terms, 120 credits. So we have an educational tariff of a credit, which is 10 learning hours. So 20 credit will be about 200 learning hours. So there's about, whatever that works out at, let me just get this right, 180 credits is a master's degree. Usually, 120 credits, so 1,200 learning hours, is the taught part, and then 60 is the dissertation. Mm -hmm. So I can translate that book into the equivalent of a master's. Now, I'm having various discussions with universities as to whether I want to get it accredited as a master's. But I don't think that's critical. I can tell people that this is, again, in UK standards, level seven education. So it's postgraduate education. You can buy a piece of it and it's £120 or £180 or £200. And then you can buy another piece and another piece. And every time you buy a piece, I'll give you a badge that you can put on your LinkedIn profile. So one person might say, I've got a master's in an MBA. And somebody else might say, I've got 15 badges from Mike and his strategy course, his strategy workshops. And probably the difference between the MBA and the person who's gone through my course is the people who go through my course will actually be able to write strategy because they will have done one as they go through the course. It will be actually writing a real strategy. Mm. It might just be for me to make me fitter or healthier, but it will be a proper strategy and you will have written it by the time you finish the course. So I think that I've got about that much leeway that I can probably go up to about £10,000 for somebody to get educated through the entire curriculum of my workshops. And if that is the case, then I'm undercharging because Mm -hmm. in £200 per workshop, I've got 
15 of them, something like that. Yeah, that's so, a lot know. cheaper than a master's degree. <laughs> yeah. Especially so here. Kind of, yeah. So you can work it back and say, where's my price point? 200 pounds, does that sound like a lot? It is for me, just as a private individual, I don't have a lot of 200 pounds kicking around. I would have to be pretty certain that I was going to do something with that learning, that it was going to get me another client or it was going to get me a better client before I'm going to spend 200 pounds. But if I'm part of a big corporation and they've got a staff development budget, then you know I may be obliged to do a certain amount of professional development every year, in which case I probably need to get my workshops accredited for professional development credits. So there's a whole bunch of ways that I think you can look at being an independent yet fitting into lots of systems, fitting into the master's education system, fitting into professional development accreditation systems, fitting in with the way that teaching content is delivered using best practice methodologies. So you are independent, but you're still fitting into lots of other systems that enable you to make a living. Yeah. I, you remind me of something that Corlin Allen talked to me about a few days ago, which was, he was saying it's underrated, this idea of just starting a business to achieve the lifestyle that you want. Mm-hmm. And right. So the example that he gives, if you just want to hang out with celebrities all day, then, you know, there are businesses in which you could just go hang out with celebrities all day. Yeah. And there are businesses now that just enable people to play video games with their favorite celebrities or get assigned whatever from their favorite celebrities. And, and that's what those founders do all day. And so I'm just wondering what you think about that idea of designing or starting a business to achieve the lifestyle that you want. To an extent, I did, but not in the way you mean. So I gave up. My last paid employment was actually in academia. So I was a professor at a small university in the UK. And in fact, I was dean. I was effectively deputy principal. So I was running the entire curriculum for that university. And I gave up because my son was four weeks old. And it took me about two and a half to three hours to travel to this work and come back home again every day. So Mm -hmm. I wasn't seeing my kids. So I decided that's it, had enough of this. I'm going to work from home so that I can be with my kids when they're growing up. So that was the main thing that I wanted to do. So I wasn't designing the kind of work I did in order to do that. I was designing the work I did so that I didn't have to commute and I didn't have to go to a paid contract. And that was really my only criterion. How can I make enough money in a really interesting way that allows me to be independent? And you mentioned that doing it in an interesting way. Obviously, I think if you hadn't done something that you were obviously interested in or knowledgeable about or found joy in creating and making, then it wouldn't have been sustainable. Yeah. Yeah. How did you think about creating something that was as we've talked about, scalable, just because of this funnel that you've created, but yeah. also something that you found a lot of joy in, but that you also thought you could add value in. So I think probably the honest answer to that is I think I struggled with that for a while. I'm pretty lucky that I'm pretty fanatical about the stuff I do. I don't find it difficult to get excited and enthusiastic about stuff. So the things that I was doing in the early days was making quite a big impact. So I, throughout pretty much my whole career, I have found a niche which is at the intersection of two 
much bigger disciplines or fields. So, for example, when I first started independent work, my background's in psychology. So I do quite a lot of analytical stuff on user needs, understanding user demands, understanding the way user interfaces work. Mm-hmm. And I applied that to retail e-commerce. So I was looking at online shopping sites and analyzing them from a kind of psychological user needs point of view. Now, bear in mind, this was 2004, so there weren't a lot of people doing it at that time. So I felt that I was doing good stuff, mostly because nobody else was doing it. Mm-hmm. Then I moved on and moved into the area of digital transformation. And this was when the whole notion of digital transformation was new and it was a big buzz. And uh, certainly in the UK, the only people that were doing it was one of the big consultancies, Capgemini. So I helped this agency that I was working with a lot to become the most discovered on search for digital transformation. We managed to wipe everybody else out. So anytime people typed in digital transformation, this organization that I was working for came up first. So Mm. we were pioneering digital transformation. So after a while, I started questioning that and thinking, what am I doing? I got offered a job with Philip Morris International, the tobacco company. Mm -hmm. And I started questioning there, what are the jobs that I would and wouldn't take? It so happens I didn't get offered the Philip Morris job because then I would have had a decision to make. Do I want it or do I turn it down? And it was an interesting one because Philip Morris do lots of advertising campaigns to try and get 13-year-old African boys hooked on tobacco. Mm -hmm. They also do quite a lot of work trying to develop electronic cigarettes and get people off the harmful effects of tobacco. Who wins? Do I think I'm working for good Philip Morris or bad Philip Morris? Anyway, I didn't have to decide, but it made me think, what am I doing? So that's when I moved into strategy. And strategy is where I think I have found home. So I am convinced that strategists can change the world. And it is not just a matter of writing a book. It's more a question of if, for example, I could get the UK government to think systematically about strategy, then I don't think we'd be in the current mess we're in with the pandemic. I think the reason we're where we are, and probably where you are as well, is because of a lack of good strategic thinking about how to tackle this particular problem. So I'm convinced that not only am I doing something that I find interesting and that I love, and I think I'm okay at, I've been doing it for a long time, so I've got a huge amount of accumulated knowledge, But it's also one of these that I've got this nice intersection again between two things. So I'm not an MBA. I haven't been the chief executive of a big company. But I have got a science background. I'm very analytical. And I'm able to communicate quite complicated things relatively simply. These are my main skills. So therefore, I'm able to talk about strategy much more authoritatively than people who have perhaps written more strategies than I have. Mm -hmm. So I'm doing stuff that I love. I've got a way of making a living out of it. And I think it's going to change the world. What else do you need, really? Right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So just to flip the question that you asked me at the beginning of the conversation back to you is why being on this process for a little while and talking to other people about this process, I know that writing a book 
And doing that deep dive into a subject and researching people is probably one of the best ways to learn more about it and, okay. and to become knowledgeable about it. But I, I'm just wondering, what was your particular motivation for writing a book? So there wasn't one out there right now. So, you know, just about all of these behind me are books on strategy, but they are either books of principles or they're books of perspectives. Michael Porter, the father of strategy, has a really interesting perspective on strategy. He thinks it's all about competitive pressures. And of course, it is about competitive pressures, but it's not only about competitive pressures. And if you just look at competitive pressures, you miss all the stuff about internal capabilities. So Porter's view on strategy is interesting, but it's not the only view, and it's not in total uh, sufficient to explain strategy. And very few books actually tell you how to write a strategy, what to do when you've written the strategy, how to get it adopted, and then how to adapt it to changing circumstances. These practicalities just aren't done. Mm -hmm. So again, it was partly I wanted it for me because my consultancy work was relatively inefficient because I kept reinventing similar models and frameworks again and again, and I wanted to take time to distill them and make them really robust and really strong. So now the models and frameworks that I've got, I tend to not have to adapt a lot. I have to apply them to different circumstances, and that helps having a lot of experience, but I don't need to think, how, go on, how do I invent a new model to deal with this? the chances are I will have something that will be able to be used. Mm. So I wanted it for my own practical reasons, but also I thought the world needed it. This one, product design, Oops. I wrote about 20 odd years ago, so that was 1995, mm -hmm. and it was effectively a handbook on how to do product design. And it was the best-selling textbook on product design for about 10 or 15 years in the UK. That worked really well. Strategy manual is a different kind of thing because product design was very easy to sell because there are courses on product yeah. design. So you go to all the courses in product design and you said you want a textbook in product design. Strategy is a bit different because there's lots of business courses out there. There are lots of professors of strategy and there are huge numbers of books on strategy. So it's a bit harder to find a niche. But I still think the world needs a practical manual on how to actually do strategy. So it was partly my own personal needs. I needed the book myself. And partly it was, I thought the world needed it. Mm -hmm. and, and so you mentioned earlier, obviously strategy and handling the pandemic. And so when you talk about strategy and helping people write strategy and understand strategy, that's not only from a business perspective, right? It's, it applies to all aspects of anywhere strategic thinking could be applied. Yeah. So anything that, so I, I tend to contrast strategy from business as usual. So if we've got some standard ways of doing things, then we need to spend a lot of our resources making sure they work well and they work efficiently and they work effectively. Mm -hmm. So that's got nothing to do with strategy. So strategy is about how I'm going to reinvent business as usual for two years' time. So will I still be doing the same stuff in two years' time? I might not. I might have had to change because my competitors may have caught up, my customers may have different needs. So how do I anticipate 
what I'm going to be doing as business as usual in two years' time and how do I design for it? Now, that could be me as an individual. Am I uh, actually going to ever get round to learning to play the piano like I've been promising myself for the last four decades? Or is that not something I'm going to get to? Now, it's probably not something I'm going to get to. So I need to make a decision. Is learning to play the piano part of my strategy for the next two years or is it not? Now, it's not going to be because I'm too many other things to do. So what is it that I'm going to do to try and make sure that strategy manual is going to be used differently in two years' time compared to how it's going to be done now. And that's my strategy. So I think strategy applies to everything from individuals. What's your parenting strategy? What's your strategy for getting through school and getting a great job or building a uh, startup yourself? What is the government strategy about COVID-19? Or what is the government strategy about climate change? These are all things we need to change in the future, either two years or 20 years ahead. And they all need strategy if they're going to be planned. Mm-hmm. And, and so it sounds like you are offering this sort of framework that's very powerful that can be applied to all the situations you mentioned there and I guess numerous others that we can't really enumerate here. And so how did you go about developing that framework in terms of you said you found strategy And you really liked it. And so now you have, you've carved out a little bit of a niche for yourself and strategy. And obviously you're going to continue to do. And was it, obviously it isn't just something that, that clicks and you're like, I know how, what the right strategy framework is. So what was that process of developing something that could be reused? So it starts with the way you talked about doing stuff yourself. So talking to half a dozen people about the same thing will To begin with, it'll sound like you're getting half a dozen different opinions. But as you let these things settle, you'll probably find that there are maybe three or four things that were common to each of these six conversations. Whether it's the idea that an independent creative career requires some sort of funnel where you process people from being aware of you to being interested in you to being engaged in what you're doing to buying your services. That might be the common thread that you distill out of six different conversations with six very different people, in Mm. which case you've just built your first model. Right, yeah. And now you need to, if you follow Tom Critchlow's advice, he talks about making sure if you have a model, firstly, you name it. So you give it a name. It doesn't have to be a catchy name. It could be a descriptive name, but it could be your model of the creative independence sales funnel. And you need a picture of it. Preferably, you need that picture of it to be released on Creative Commons so that everybody can use it. They don't have to steal it. You're giving it away. So long as they refer back to it as yours and they attribute it back to you. Mm -hmm. So as soon as you start building these kinds of models, that builds your armory of things that you've got. Now, I found that I had a model that was to do with developing strategy, and I had another model that was to do with measuring strategy. But when I looked at the two of them, they looked completely different. Mm -hmm. But when I started working on it, I could see ways to change each of them so they actually made sense and they worked together. Now, that then gets really powerful. And you just start with one model. And then you build a second one that doesn't seem to be related, and then you gradually relate it together. 
And the other one that I think you would like is Venkatesh Rao. He's the guy who started up the Yak Collective. He wrote an article called The Calculus of Grit. And he is suggesting here that if you're going to become an authority, an expert in an area, you need to do three things. You need to publish. You need to be able to refer to the stuff that you've published. And you need to revisit and refresh it and do it better and better and keep publishing and keep sweating at that same thing. So this notion of when you've got an idea, publish it, then be able to reference it so that you can start connecting it out to other things. Mm -hmm. And thirdly, keep iterating on it to make it better and better and expanding it and, and expanding it. And I think that's probably what I did with the strategy stuff. I'd been working on models for clients for a decade, probably, but I hadn't tried to pull them all together into a systematic structure that connected from end to end and managed a full life cycle of strategy. So that was connecting the models together. But starting where you're starting is a great thing to do, but you do need to distill it down. You need to pause and think, I've had six conversations now. What are the common themes? What are the differences between them? Maybe I could go back and ask a couple of them. This is what I've extracted out of six conversations, including you. Do you agree that I've got it right about the thing that I think you were doing? That will allow you to refine and iterate. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a great way to be starting and good on you for actually reaching out to people and saying, can I have a chat? Mm -hmm. Brilliant mm -hmm. thing to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I've just, I've heard the word leverage for ages, but I'm just understanding what leverage actually means. And so I think what you're talking about there is building leverage, right? Because a model is something that anyone can come back to. A model is, I mean, it scales infinitely because as you said, putting it on Creative Commons, then everyone's saying, okay, this is Mike Baxter's model, but it talks about an idea that I think is really interesting and powerful that I'm going to refer to here. And, and then that's just people entering your funnel. I think that's probably one of the most interesting things that I've taken away from this is that not only is it this idea of building something that, that scales, right? I think one of the conversations I had, it was probably one of my favorite conversations in that the person was researching this new creator economy, passion economy, whatever you want to call it in a similar way I was. And so he defined a creator as someone who scales without permission. Yes. Okay. And, and the best thing that I've seen is that people collaborate with each other in a way that sort of ends up supporting everyone else's work, right? Yes. Because then yes. in his work, he was mentioning a couple other people I talked to. And then their work, they were mentioning a couple other people they talked to. And then I wrote something and I was referring to something everyone else was talking to. And so it's been... So, so that's all good. But there is another side of it as well, which I'll just mention briefly, which is that giving stuff away is great, but you've got to then decide... If I'm giving all this away free, where am I actually going to make my money? Mm -hmm. And when you get to that stage, you need to put a wall around it and keep everybody out. So on the one hand, I might appear the nicest guy in the world because I keep on giving all of this stuff away. But at the same time, I am being fiercely defensive of the stuff that I think is going to make me my money and feed my family and enable me to go on vacation if we're ever allowed to go on vacation ever again. And it enables me to live my life. And I've got to protect that. 
Right. Now, if you start scaling that, then you get into the other world that I'm in, which is the VC-funded tech startups. And they live far more predominantly within this ring-fenced world of intellectual property. And how do I protect it against all competition that's going to come up against it? And it's, they need to give a little bit away free, but only to educate their clients and their prospects about the value of buying in to their software platform mm -hmm. and get them hooked on the, the principles and the ways of working that that particular software platform supports. And that is a ruthless world. And it's quite different culturally from the sort of independent indie hacker type world. And it is largely driven by venture capital money which I have come to conclude is a pretty evil thing. So if you want to get a little taste of it, Rand Fishkin's book. So Rand Fishkin built moz.com, M-O-Z.com. And he's written a book, which I can't remember the name of, but it's sitting beside me, behind me somewhere. Rand Fishkin wrote a book about how he was entrapped by the venture capital system. And how on paper, I think he ended up being worth about 22 million bucks, but he still had to take a mortgage out to buy a house because he couldn't get access to any of it. Because the VC funders said, no founder takes any money out of the business until we take our money out. So he had to wait until they floated before he could get hold of any money. So he was just on a salary like everybody else, despite the fact he was worth 22 million bucks. <laughs> so... It's a tricky situation. It's quite a different kind of beast, this VC world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sorry about that. I just had some <laughs> noise in the background. Yeah, I, I don't, I think, I spoke to Cortland Allen about this distinction of an indie hacker and a, a startup founder, someone in the VC space. And, and so I haven't heard a lot about sort of the snares of VC funding. I know enough now to know that not everyone offering you money is going to be the right person to take money from, obviously. But I think, so in, an indie hacker type person is someone who specifically optimizes for freedom, as we talked about it, and that has its own drawbacks, right? You're not, the majority of indie hackers are not going to make as much money as they would in a paid job. And that's fine. It's just a trade-off to understand, right? But these are people who specifically optimize for freedom. This is something that they enjoy doing, but they might do a lot of the same things. They could steadily be building a business. They could be building software that helps people. And most of them are. And a startup founder is someone who has to move very fast, right? The demands of that industry are you compress 20, 30 years of work down to two or three years and you're iterating as quickly as possible. And so I think indie hackers have an opportunity to build more steadily and maximize their own weirdness in that when you're an indie hacker, someone's buying something that's uniquely yours, right? Yes. You're carving out. I heard a story about a woman who made a job site just based off like what values that people have. That's not something that's going to scale, but it made her some money and it was something that was wacky and unique to her. And so that's an example of just being weird online, paying off and, and online lets you do that. And so I think they're different in that the demands of their industry are different, but I think these people are very similar people. I think Peter Levels has a lot of the same attributes of a startup founder in that there's right high bias towards action. They, they like building things. They want to 
make the world a better place with technology. And so I think just the things that they're optimizing for might be different. The conversation I mentioned to you before with the person who defined the creator, what a creator is for me for the first time and things like that. Mm. He talked about entrepreneurs as sort of optimizing for glory, whereas an indie hacker would be optimizing for freedom. And so that was my first look at the Mm. distinction between the two, but I think they're both still fundamentally entrepreneurs. Okay, so the distinction I think you might find useful is that optimizing for freedom doesn't work with a high growth business. Mm-hmm. It is the almost the opposite of freedom. <laughs> you are so frantically trying to keep up with all the demands that are being imposed on you, especially during that early startup phase, when you get into scale-up phase, so you've maybe hit a million turnover and you're then thinking, how can I scale that up to 100 million? Mm -hmm. That's a slightly different thing. But getting that early stage where you are trying to compress, as you put it, 20 years into two, that is by no stretch of the imagination free in any way because you are not free. You have bosses. If you've got seed funders, never mind VC funders, if you've got seed funders, you have bosses. If you've got a board, you've got bosses. If you've got co-founders, you've got collaborators. So all of these things that are happening are not freedom. And I think the notion of being an indie hacker, indie creator, for a lifestyle business is great because all you really need to do is you need to make enough money to live comfortably. Yeah. But that's not going to change the world. You can't change the world as one person. If you're going to change the world or even make a dent in your little bit of the world, you're going to need to scale. And that's not freedom. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a myth that independence means freedom. And it does if you're running a lifestyle business. But if you're going to try and scale it, that is not freedom. That is certainly not my view of freedom. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So my approach has always been to bootstrap all the way through. So just about all of the businesses I've been involved with myself, so not as an advisor, but the ones I've been involved with myself, I have bootstrapped the whole lot. I have never got funding in. I probably will get funding in for this business when it scales, but by that time, I plan not to be the chief exec. Mm-hmm. I want to have moved sideways, so I will still be advising, I'll still be running, but I want to make sure that the business is big enough that I can buy in a chief executive and they're going to take all the crap that needs to be dealt with to scale this business because I don't want to do it. Yeah, I, <laughs> I heard a great thing from one of my advisors at school, which was uh, no one no one starts a business to be a CEO. You start yeah. a business to solve a problem. Yeah. <laughs> And And unfortunately, um, being a CEO is often a side effect of actually wanting to solve a problem. Um, Yeah. (laughs) There's a lot that they have to do that unsavory probably is the wrong word, but it's just probably not stuff that they'd anticipated doing starting out when they wanted to solve the problem that they wanted to solve. Yeah, absolutely. But with the startup that I'm an advisor to, I know that every single email that I've got from the CEO of that startup where he's writing to the board. So I was on the board for a while and now I'm an advisor. And as soon as the the big VCs come in, the Series B VCs come in, they tend to chuck everybody else off the board, including me. So now I'm an advisor. But the CEO 
when he writes to the advisors on the board, I know it's going to hit my inbox on Sunday because he spent all of Saturday finishing off the week's work that he didn't get done on Friday. And on Sunday, he's got to clear up the bigger important tasks like writing to the board or writing to his advisors before he starts again on Monday. So he's been doing a seven day a week job for probably six years now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's just goes with the territory. Now he's well on the way to making a hundred million pound business. So good on him. He's going to get a massive paycheck one of these days, mm -hmm. but blimey has he worked hard for it. Right. Yeah. His life is not free. <laughs> he has yeah. no freedom at all. He's certainly beholden to, as you say, the people who made money. It's interesting in that you mentioned so that the series B VC came in, so they've probably raised a lot of money, but then they also, they wanted to consolidate where the money was coming from and then who got the most payday. Is that probably yeah. why? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So as soon as the established VCs come in, and also we started up as a UK company. Mm -hmm. So we started off with uh, London-based venture capital firms. But for Series B, that was to fund the expansion into the US. So we needed at least American, if not Silicon Valley, VCs to get involved so that we had the support for the American launch. Mm -hmm. And the American launch has had a bit of a hiccup because it was scheduled for March of this year. So uh, <laughs> that didn't work very well. So I think they're just back in there now. They're just picking up the, the strings again and hoping to get launched for February, March next year. Hopefully. Yeah. Yeah, I. it's interesting. There's a lot of people my age now who want to get into VC. And it seems like there's a lot of paths into VC. I don't know if you're familiar with there's sort of scout programs at school, there's VC fellowships. Mm -hmm. And it's just interesting because I always thought the way to get into VC was to start a company yourself, have an exit or maybe it crashes and burns, but then you work your way to the other side of the table where you're now giving money to people now. And it doesn't seem like that's the case I don't know if that's a shift, but it just doesn't seem like that's the case with a lot of the people that I see trying to get into VC is that they're in college just trying to get into VC. Yes, yes. It depends an awful lot on just what you want to do because mm -hmm. the, the business model for VCs is very clear and very straightforward. They're going to have a lot of things that they're going to back that are not going to work. And therefore, they need a few that are going to be absolutely massive. And the ones that they get that are massive, they have got to manage really carefully and they've got to be completely ruthless about it. So the surest way to lose your position as CEO of a startup company is to not hit your numbers and the VCs, unless you've still managed to hang on to a majority shareholding, which you almost certainly will not have, the VCs will throw you out and get a new chief executive in. So one of the advisors to this company that I advise, so one of my co-advisors, had just been chucked out of his own company that he started up and had raised 50 million capital on and then didn't hit his numbers for a couple of, I think, for two quarters and then hit them and then missed them for another couple of quarters and that was him out of a job. He had a lot of shares. He was going to be very rich but he'd been thrown out of his own company. But does he still keep those shares or? Yeah, yeah. Oh, there we go, so, there we go, yeah. 
to be thrown out of your own company after you've nurtured it for that long, that's tough. That's not easy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So just looking at the time, I want to obviously into our conversation. I want to ask the question that I typically end with in, in all of these conversations, which yeah. is what makes you uh, the most hopeful for the future, uh, whether it's in your own life or just for the world regarding some sort of global trend. Okay. So I am a big fan of Hans Rosling. You come across him. He wrote a book called Factfulness which again is behind me somewhere. And he has shown that most of the important metrics governing quality of life and future of life on the planet have been improving massively over the last 40 years. So birth rates, infant mortality, disease rate, lifespan, quality of life, wealth, Mm-hmm. levels of nutrition and malnutrition, every single one of them has undergone massive improvements in the last 40 years and really show no signs of falling back. So that then means that we're doing most of the stuff that we ought to do, we're doing correctly. We're not necessarily doing it very efficiently, but we are actually doing it correctly. Now, clearly, there's some that we haven't been doing very well at all. So we haven't been looking after the planet terribly well. And I suspect that's going to be the big correction in the next few years, provided we don't get derailed by, for example, social media polarizing our politics. So there are some risks. I don't necessarily think they're existential risks, but there are some serious risks that our path towards progress could be derailed by populist nationalist politics or by the fake news agenda or anti-vaxxers. There are all sorts of things that threaten to remove rational decision-making, evidence-based decision-making, an empirical approach to life. There are lots of things threatening to take that out of our world and derail the progress that we're making. But provided that we don't get derailed by that, then I think the future is unbelievably rosy and I do not go with the doom mongers at all. Climate change, compared to the issues we've solved in the last thousand years, climate change is a relatively trivial problem to solve. It's not going to be, it's going to be expensive And it's going to take a degree of political will that we haven't been able to show in many things so far. But I suspect that will probably change in the next 10 years. So I am a techno-optimist. And I think that the world is heading in a really wonderful direction. There are a few scary things happening, but generally it's in a wonderful direction. And we just need to be careful about the things that are likely to go wrong and make sure we get these managed and I would say manage strategically. <laughs> what a positive note to end on and a great way to yeah. like, yeah, I think it's certainly an exciting time and it's, it's an exciting time to be my age and it's a, an exciting time to right, be at the forefront of all these trends and see what happens over the next 10 or 20 years because sure. I think it'll be pretty amazing. Yeah. So here's my challenge to you then as we go our separate ways. Send me a model of what you've learned mm-hmm. when you've finished this 
set of conversations that you're having, send me a model. For sure. Or a thing that you've learned from it all and why you think that it's important because I'd really love to see what you take out of them and what you think the big learnings are from having talked to people. And I love the idea of you consolidating all of that experience that you've had talking to lots of interesting people and making something quite specific and tangible that, if you like, is an embodiment of the knowledge that they have shared with you over the last little while. Mm-hmm. So there's my challenge, knowing you may not want to take it up, but the challenge is there nonetheless. I, I think I'll take you up on that. I think I'll take you up on that. Yeah. Good. Good. <laughs> I'll probably I'll probably get you something by the end of um, December, maybe. But excellent. Yeah, I really appreciate obviously taking the time to talk to a stranger, but obviously also offering a lot of value. And it's great. You've written a book. You've been in this space for a while. You have more knowledge than me about a lot of these things. And so it's excellent to see where you're at and also to know that you're really hopeful about where things are going. Yeah, sure. No, it's been a delight talking to you. I'm sorry I missed our start time, but we got there eventually. So We got there. We worked it out in the end. Okay. Yeah, I appreciate it, Mike. Take care. Nice to talk to you. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. Please like, subscribe, tweet, text, and share so that more people can find the podcast. Take care, and we'll see you next time.